It'll be a little bit different today. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, some of you I don't think I've met before. Uh, my name is Leith. Where's my marker? Hi, everybody. Um, for future reference, this is how it's spelled. This is how it's pronounced. This is crucial right here. That's a that's a th sound. It's not a fu. It's not a. It's not silent. Um, because I'm I'm a very passive person, and if you pronounce it the wrong way, I will never correct you. Um, so this is just so we don't have one of those awkward encounters. Um, if you say what? I said whatever you say, Lee. <laughs> fine. That's fine. Um, <laughs> Anyways, um, so I'm going to be doing MANA today, um, and I think next week also. Jay, do you, can you confirm? Jay doesn't know. We'll see. Um, hopefully I'll find out by next Monday. Um, so if you guys remember, a quick, quick recap um, of what we've been going through throughout the book of Second Kings. There's been a lot of, um, well really this book is living up to its namesake. There's been a lot of kings passing through uh, Judah and Israel. And if I asked you to just shout the name of a king out right now, it would probably be really hard for you to do because there are just so many to choose from. It wasn't like Samuel where it was really easy. You could either say Saul or David or Solomon. Those were the three main dudes. Um, in this era of Israel's history and Judah's history as well, they're, just, they're going through kings constantly. And uh, for the most part, chapter 15 which is starting where we left off last time. That's just kind of keeping up that same trend. So this should be sort of familiar for you guys. There's a couple things that change, though, and I'll point those out, and there's a couple pretty big historical moments that I'll try and point out as well. Um, but without further ado, uh, we'll start in chapter 15 of Second Kings. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. So, not that different from his father, and I think his father's father as well. Uh, and the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house. Now that might seem super abrupt. Oh, this king's just fine, is doing exactly what his dad did, but the Lord made him a leper. Why? Um, the answer is actually not covered in Second Kings. I think Chase mentioned there's another book that we don't have time to go through this semester because it's largely recap of this book and of First and Second Samuel that's called First and Second Chronicles. And this incident is covered a little bit more in depth in 2 Chronicles. Basically what happened is King Azariah, who's also called Uzziah, which is something that I think, yeah, later on they call him Uzziah, and there's a footnote that says Uzziah is also Azariah. Because get this, he also had a priest named Azariah. Isn't that fun? Um, this, this whole name business got old really quickly for me. Uh, people having the same name. Um, but that's why they have these nicknames to help distinguish them. So... Azariah Uzziah, the king, he gets proud. That's what Second Chronicles says. It says he, he becomes strong, and the strength turns into pride for him. And so he decides, I want to burn incense to the Lord in the temple, which in and of itself isn't a terrible thing, but is that his job as king? 
No. Whose job is it to burn incense, to do, to make any offerings in the temple? Priests. Yeah. The, the sons of Aaron, as they're called. Um, so what actually ends up happening is 80 priests, the chief priest and 80 other priests, enter the temple where Azariah has the censer for burning the incense in his hand, and they're like, hey, you really shouldn't do this. Um, we're the ones who are supposed to be doing this. 80 guys come in and try to talk him down, and he gets upset that they are trying to stop the king of all people for burning incense to the Lord. So with all of that taken into account, the Lord gives him leprosy. So knowing that, it's a little less out of the blue um, and shows a little bit more of, yes, Azariah was a good king, he did good things, but that also sort of led him to being prideful about how good of a king he was, um, which I think humanizes him a little bit more um, and unfortunately is the cause of him having leprosy, and so now he's totally separate because people feared the contagiousness, contag- contagion. contagions of uh, leprosy. So he had to be in a separate living place for pretty much the rest of his life, and he would pretty much rule Judah remotely, um, which is not the best when you're you know, the one king representative over all the land. Um, but that's what happened. That's what his pride led to. Um, unfortunately. So I stopped us halfway through verse 5. We'll pick up on the other half. And Jotham, the king's son, was over all the land in the household, governing the people of the land. So basically his son, who would take over when he dies, essentially takes over um, while his dad is forced to sit in another room. Um, Verse 6. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Jotham his son reigned in his place. And uh, if you read Isaiah chapter 6, at the very beginning of Isaiah chapter 6, he talks about this point in history. So um, Azariah's son, Jotham, taking over for his father as king of Judah. It was during this time that the Lord comes to Isaiah and tells him, hey, you're going to be a prophet. So if, you're, if you've read Isaiah, which truth be told, I have not, uh, not, its, not in its entirety. I read that one scene with the, with the, the robe. Um, but we'll be getting into Isaiah soon enough, I think. Um, so when we get to that part, know that that's about where we are in history. Isaiah is just now being groomed into a prophet. And then while everything else is going on throughout the rest of this book, Isaiah is growing and starting to prophesy and all that. Um, and if you're more well-read than I am, that's helpful for you to sort of stick in and knowing where we are in history. Um, verse 8. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel and Samaria six months. That is a laughably short period of time. Um, and this is, that's kind of the trend. It happened a lot more earlier on. I think in First Kings it was. But you'll see there's some really, really short reigns of kings. Um, and I like to think of it as, because I, I think it's okay biblically to be able to laugh at that fact that these kings are so bad that one of them only reigns six months. And he's actually outdone a few verses later by someone else. Um, but does anyone, for those of you that grew up in the 1990s, does anyone remember those things called slap bracelets? It's like, it looks like a ruler, it's got like leopard print or zebra stripes or something on it, and people thought they were so cool because it's like straight, and then you slap it on someone's wrist, and it curves around to their wrist. 
slap bracelets lasted longer than this king did, and no one, no one remembers them hardly anymore. So as a good frame of reference for how brief and how just bad he must have been as a king to be overthrown that far into his kingship, that's how bad it was. He is outlasted by, I mean, you remember what they were. Um, so that's just funny. Um, verse 9. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, which is a symptom of why he got kicked out so quickly. Um, as his fathers had done, he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down at Ibliam and put him to death and reigned in his place. So I'm going to start, I'm going to keep track of all the different kings we have overthrown here. So there's a thing in the military, or in, I guess, military strategy, I don't know. It's a French word called coup d'etat. And I don't know why the French get all the cool military terms, but we use this instead of coming up with our own in English. This, I looked it up in French, literally means, what does it mean? So coup means a blow, like a physical blow. D'etat means of the status. So it's literally a punch to someone's status. So there's several times, and that's essentially talking about when there's a certain ruler in place, uh, a revolt comes up, and they put a new ruler in his place. So there's a blow to his status, and now someone else is at the status of the ruler. And this happens several times before we even finish out this chapter. So the first time it happens, we have Zechariah, who, if you remember, in the line of Jehu. He's the last one in the line of Jehu because now we've got Shalom coming into his place. We've got a coup here. Our first change of hands in Kings. But it happens again in like two seconds. Chapter, or, uh, verse 11. Now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. This was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu. Your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. And uh, he did not promise how long that fourth generation would be. Six months is all they got. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the 39th year of King Uzziah, who's also Azariah, king of Judah. And he reigned one month, one month, in Samaria. Um, that's pretty terrible. So now, Shalom... Uh, who took over, he must have had, you know, some sort of military force behind him to be able to overthrow a king. He lasts a whole 30 days, 31 if you're generous. So now we've got Shalom here, and who's he taken over by? Menahem. Now we've got a new king. And that is, we've been in school longer than a month. That's like that. Um, so that's pretty bad. We've got another coup. Coup for short. Um, where did I leave off? And also this is important to notice too. Uh, this is a, a, I don't know what you call it, I guess a literary usage that happens frequently, especially throughout First and Second Kings. In order to understand the switching off of kings in Israel, they talk about what year it was during the one king's reign of Judah. So not only are we helping establish, okay, it was 39 years into uh, this Judah king's reign, but also there were, I don't know how many times that they had to switch off kings or kings were overtaken 
in Israel. Meanwhile, Judah has the same king throughout the whole time. And that's something we could put over here. Judah has just one consistent king throughout all of this. Um, because Judah is the place where the line of David was continued, and uh, Israel is just a mess right now. Um, 14, verse 14. Then Menahem, the son of Gadi, came up from Tirzah and came to Samaria, and he struck down Shalom, the son of Shalom, who knows, the son of Jabesh in Samaria, and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Shalom and the conspiracy that he made, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. At that time, Menahem sacked Tifsah and all who were in it and its territory from Tirzah on, because they did not open it to him. Therefore he sacked it, and he ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. <sighs> Rough stuff. Uh, verse 17. In the 39th year, so the same year, uh, if you look back to the section before, this is still in the same 39th year, of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, became to reign over Israel, and he reigned ten years in Samaria. Oh, sorry. I threw you off there. So ten years. Not too bad compared to everyone else. Uh, Eighteen. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam and the son of Nebat, which, which he made Israel to sin. Pool, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pool a thousand talents of silver that he might help him to confirm his hold on the royal power. Menahem exacted the money from Israel, that is, from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. He's basically paying off another land because he has that little amount of confidence in his own power to stand up against them. But it's not, it's not the king's money. He's taking it from the richer guys in Israel, um, which is great. Verse 21, Now the rest of the deeds of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Menahem slept with his fathers, and Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. In the fiftieth year of Azariah, so he's still king in Judah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned a measly two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And Pekah, so there's Pekahiah, who is the son of Menahem, he's king. Pekah is uh, the son of Remaliah, his captain. So Pekah, Pekahiah, again, not amused by this, by the way, um, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead and struck him down in Samaria in the citadel of the king's house with Argob and Ariah. He put him to death and reigned in his place. So now again, we've got Pekahiah, who is Menahem's son. So that was a very short dynasty for him, taken over by Pekah. And I can only imagine, this is complete conjecture, I'm not getting this out of the Bible, I can only imagine how confusing that is for people who just had a king called Pekahiah, and now he's only reigned two years, was it? Pekah takes over for Pekahiah. Their names are so similar that I feel like that just had to cause some confusion. I mean, it's causing me confusion just reading about it. But, um, but not only that, it just keeps switching back and forth. And if you're in Israel... You've got to be thinking, so who's king now? Like, was this guy overthrown? 
Oh no, that, that was the king before this guy. Okay, like this is all happening within one person's lifetime, within one king's reign. Um, and I, I keep repeating that because this should come out as ridiculous to us. The Bible is not trying to present this as something normal. Um, that's why I repeat it so many times, and because I just love to talk. Uh, where are we at? Verse 25, I lost it. 26. 26? Oh my gosh, I was in the next chapter. There are 26 verses. Uh, now the rest of the deeds of Pekahiah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Ramahiah, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 20 years. So that's substantial compared to his predecessors. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Not that different, not that surprising. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ejon, abel beth Genoa, Kadesh, Hazer, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. Then, after all of this happens, Hoshea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. So now Judah has a new king, finally, they actually switch over, but it's not because of some sort of takeover. It's just Uzziah got too old, uh, probably died from his leprosy. But even still, I'm running out of room here. We have another coup. We've got Pekah, who did well for himself, all things considered, taken over by Hoshea. And thankfully, that's the last time we have to worry about remembering another king's name. Um, but isn't that silly, you guys? Um, verse 30. So, or verse 31. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. Verse 32. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. And that is just refreshing to hear <laughs> compared to everything else um, that's going to be going on in Israel right now. Um, where are we at? 35. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. Whoops. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, against Judah, presumably because there are still high places, and they never really learned that the Lord never asked for those. Um, Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, and Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. So I'm going to stop us here, because it's the end of the chapter, and because Ahaz... Um, so, I'm not... No one's going to expect you to remember all these names, except you, Cole, obviously. Um, but just remember, this, this whole business, this whole chapter, what's going on in Israel, it's a disaster. If you can take one thing away from it, remember that. When you're not following the ways of the Lord, you're asking for absolute chaos. Um, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Um, okay.
But now things are about to get shaken up in Judah, unfortunately. Judah was kind of the one good place to be a follower of Yahweh, and now this guy Ahaz, uh, this little rascal, he is going to change that, unfortunately. So let's see what it is he does. Chapter 16, verse 1. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old, so not that much older than some of you, some of you guys, uh, when he began to reign. And he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, and as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So Ahaz breaks the combo of good kings in Judah that started all the way back with, was it Asa? Was he the first one? He was one of the first. Um, and now Ahaz decides he's going to run Judah his own way, um, which is pretty terrible. And I think it's a little ironic because he's now going over to this pagan practice of cha- sacrificing children. But if he had stopped to think for five seconds, what if his dad did that? He wouldn't even be there. Um, so this whole thing is just nonsensical. And uh, I know Chase has brought it up before about just the really weird, terrible stuff that pagans were doing at the time. Um, but now that seeped into Judah, and that's a very, very bad thing. Um, and so this is sort of the, there was kind of this momentum with You know, things weren't great in Israel, but at least it was consistent. There would be a king, he might have a few sons, and then another guy would just completely cut off his line and take over. Um, Meanwhile, Judah was consistently uh, the descendants of David. And while that hasn't necessarily changed in and of itself, now Judah has a bad king, which they haven't seen in a very long time. Um, And so this is sort of the break out of that rhythm that we were in. And... uh, It adds for a little bit of drama. So, verse 5. Then Rezin, the king of Syria, so remember Syria is one of those neighboring nations, um, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. At that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elath for Syria, and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So this is all land, changing hands. Um, If I was math-oriented like Chase, I would draw you a diagram. I don't know where these places are. I apologize. Um, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. So now Judah, who was kind of this nice little safe haven, the king is making deals with other pagan nations, and he has no faith in the Lord that he could overcome his enemies in some sort of astounding victory, which, if he knew his history, has happened many, many times before. They enter a battle with like a tenth of the number of men as their enemies, and they win because God was on their side. Um, But he doesn't have any trust in that, and so he does what 
lot of people might think is the smart political move and makes an ally with another nation. But that, I mean, God hasn't been mentioned once in this chapter so far, I think. Or, oh, sorry. Uh, he took the gold from the house of the Lord. So he's mentioned there, and that's, that's not good. Um, he's taking gold that was there for worship of God, um, and he's giving it to this other king to help him in political stuff. Um, so that is also not good. Um, verse 10. When King Ahaz, sorry, when King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. This is a pagan altar that he's looking at. This is the uh, this is the Assyrian's altar, whatever god that they worshipped at the time. Um, this is the altar he's looking at. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah, uh, the priest, a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering, poured his drink offering, and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house. Big problem there. From the place between his altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of the altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great altar, burn the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering and throw it on, throw it all, sorry, throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Uriah, made, Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them, and he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal, and, he, and the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance for the king he caused to go around the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. So, the reason I have 1 John 2, 15 through 17 written up here is because I think that this is immensely applicable to this section that we just read. Um, so, what it says, and I'm going to stop before 17. I'll bring up 17 later. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This right here, and I'm specifically talking about this little chunk right after verse 10 of this chapter, uh, this is textbook love of the world. So if there was any confusion from Crave a few weeks ago about what, is it, what does it mean to love the world? Like, uh, I bought a watch, but it, I didn't buy it from Mardell. Is that okay? Like, this is what it's talking about. Um, and this is somewhere where it's really easy to see. Um, love for the world displayed in exactly what Ahaz is doing. So there's three factors that I notice to how Ahaz is specifically showing this off. The first thing is Ahaz sees something worldly. So it says, verse 10, 
he saw the altar that was at Damascus. That's the first thing that happens. He subjects himself to another culture's god, their idol that they sacrifice to. Um, and it's also, to relate it back to 1 John, when he sees it, he likes it. So it's literally the desires of the eyes, verse 16. So he sees it, that's the first part of it. And then Ahaz wants it. And so for Ahaz to want this altar and then want to make it in his own kingdom, uh, before he can do that, he already makes a preference in his head that something else is going to be better than God to me. Um, and his, so his love for the world is shown through his preference for the world. It's not necessarily... Uh, like when we think a lot of people get confused because they think it's saying don't be loving to the world and that's not what it's talking about it's saying don't prefer the world and that's exactly what he does here he takes away all the things that are forefront that represent Yahweh and he puts in this altar from Assyria and so now he's showing a clear preference not only for the king of Assyria to try and make him happy by modeling his whole altar set up around him but he's showing, I like this altar a little bit better. And that's another thing that Second Chronicles goes into a little bit more, is he actually, uh, the author talks about how Ahaz saw, that, saw how much better the people with other gods were doing, and he decided, I want to be doing well like them, so I'm going to build an altar like theirs. Um, and so now Ahaz sees, he sees the other altar, the desires of the eyes, he wants it. He decides, I actually prefer this over the God of the universe. I prefer whatever benefits I think I'm going to get from it. And then he actually gets it. He actively says, okay, Uriah, make it exactly as I am. He's causing Uriah to sin in that moment. Uriah is a priest, and he's telling him, we're switching gods. Um, I don't like what Yahweh's done for us so far. We're going to take, they don't even name the God in here. That's how insignificant he was. Um, and then he actively replaces all the stuff of the temple with things representing false gods. So he sees it, he wants it, and he gets it. And that is exactly what it is when we love the world. There's something that we see that maybe is something we necessarily shouldn't want, but then we want it regardless, we want it all the same, and then we take it against all wisdom in our face. Um, and I know that's really broad in general, and maybe you don't know how that's applying to you, so hopefully I'm, I'm going to keep blabbing, and eventually it'll make sense. Um, so now let's look at verse 17 of 1 John 2. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So this altar is pro was probably pretty nice. Um, it, I'm guessing it was made out of gold or something like that, or at least had gold on it. It was expensive. Um, otherwise, him just looking at it wouldn't have caused anything. If it looked like a tree stump, I don't think Ahaz would have been like, oh my gosh, we need one of those in Judah. Um, so this was probably a pretty nice altar, but the worldliness of something is not necessarily something you can discern just by looking at it. Um, what makes it worldly is the fact that if it isn't from God, it's not going to last. And this was clearly not from God because it, res it represented an idol from another nation. Um, and the inherent difference between that and something representing Yahweh is that Yahweh, our God, the God of the Bible, lasts forever. This thing, whatever it is, is temporary, and it's fake. Um, 
And it's a blip in history. How many people do you see worshiping altars like this one? We don't even know what it was called because I'm, the author may not have even remembered what the name of the god was, which is uh, considering the other idols that are given by name, that's actually shows its insignificance that we don't even know what it was called. Um, so keeping all of that in mind, uh, the world is passing away just like this thing did. This thing didn't last for them. Um, what was my point there? Uh, basically, oh, here we go. I have another card. That's why. I'm sorry. I'm a big card person because otherwise I'll just start going and it won't make any sense to us. Um, so what he's doing is he's modeling his life after the life of the Assyrians. He's made something that they worship, and now he's doing a lot of the same worshiping that he used to do uh, for Yahweh, but he's turned it over, and now he's doing it the Assyrian style. Um, and so where this applies for us is thinking about what it is that we are actually modeling ourselves after, and specifically the things that we worship that maybe we don't realize that we're worshiping. Um, so like I said before, this doesn't mean that if you have a book that you didn't buy at Mardell, or you decide you want to go out for lunch, but it's a place that's not Chick-fil-A. It doesn't mean that you don't do those things because, oh, this isn't directly related to a Christian organization. Um, so my example is, I'm getting a new phone. This phone, I'm surprised it's on right now. The reason I didn't want to record with it is because it just shuts off for no reason. Um, and it does this weird thing where, like, all these windows will pop up, and I'll try to close them, and they, like, won't close, um, which... First world problems, I know. But it makes it completely unusable as a phone in those, most, in those moments. So I'm going to buy a new one. And I've been doing research, trying to get one that's affordable and durable. And I found the new phone I'm going to get. And it looks like a Ferrari compared to this thing. It's very flashy. I don't like that aspect of it. But it's probably the best deal. Um, and my brother-in-law said it got really good reviews on CNET, whatever. That is all to say that is okay, but if I'm getting it out of the desire that, like, oh my gosh, like, the new Motorola X is out, like, that it's so cool, the guy in the commercial was doing this with it, you shake it and the camera turns on, um, the minute you're saying that, or the minute you're saying, my life will be better with this thing, that's how you know that you don't have a tool, you have an altar of some sort that you might be worshiping, and now it's like, oh, I think I care more about my appearance than I do about being able to text whoever's in my small group or being able to check BSM updates or talk to my mom. That's a good thing, too, whatever you might use your phone for. Um, so that is an, a representative of worldly love because that's going to pass away. What people think about me with my phone, you might see me with a cool phone and be like, oh, Lee's got a new phone. That's cool. And then you're off and you're in biology, and that is the last thing that you would ever think of. You're not going to be there the whole time like, that phone was so cool, you know? <laughs> and like, till the day of your death, your last words are like, Lee's phone was so cool. <laughs> um, so that's what I'm talking about with things passing away. So for me, specifically, um, just to be frank with all of you, um, it's very difficult, and I'm sure a lot, some people here may have the same thing, uh, I like to be very active, I like to exercise a lot, but the minute that I'm doing that, not just to be active, not just to feel cardiovascularly improved or whatever, um, that's when I need to check myself before I start 
turning something good into something that I've all of a sudden worshipped without realizing it. So if I'm lingering in the mirror too long and I'm just like, I am an attractive man, that's, that's not good. And that's, that's something that a lot of us have to think about with something that we like a whole lot that may not necessarily be bad, but could morph into an altar if we're not careful. Um, so before I just completely derail everything, I will continue this a little bit in this next chapter. Um, so to bring us back a little bit, what do we have? We have Ahaz, not a very good king in Judah. So now there's really no good kings in the land, as far as we can tell. Um, still a descendant of David, but has not done as David would have done, and has done even worse than his fathers, who were pretty good for the most part, but as we remember, did not get rid of the high places of the Lord. Now, not only has he not gotten rid of the high places, and he's got a dad, uh, it was either his father or his grandfather, who tried to burn incense um, in the temple, which is something that only the priests are allowed to do. Now, he's done even worse. He said, nah, forget Yahweh. We've got... Uh, Joe Schmo idol, whatever his name was. Um, and so now he is, and if you remember, the bad part of the kings of Israel was that they were causing Israel to sin because they were saying, as a national decree, Yahweh is not our God, this is our God, and we're going to uh, sacrifice children to it, we're going to have people have ritual intercourse to sacrifice so that we can get rain and stuff like that. Um, and now that's sort of starting to happen in Judah. Um, and we're switching, we'll switch gears a little bit and talk about what's going on in uh, Israel over here. And let me tell you, it's not good. <laughs> Chapter 17. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, so if you remember, the last, most recent king to take over from another king, Hosea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, shocker, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute. So basically became his little lackey, um, which, being a king, you really shouldn't be subject to anybody, uh, at least no actual person, but he was. Uh, but the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. So this really shouldn't be surprising to this king, that he makes deals with other kings, and then tries to make other deals behind the backs of those kings, and then those, de those kings he made the deals with in the first place get upset because you've been paying him every year, and now all of a sudden you don't pay me, and what's this I hear about you uh, consorting with the king of Egypt? So this shouldn't be a surprise to him, but I think, it's, I think it's more a sign of just kind of how unprepared he was for this whole role um, than anything else. And this next section is just one verse long, and unfortunately the title is The Fall of Israel. Verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, so this is his last year reigning, you know something's about to happen. Assyria, sorry, Hosea, the king of Assyria, captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the harbor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. So now Israel has been vacated. He's taken all the people out, 
and put them in other places. And pretty soon, other people now start to settle Israel, people who have absolutely nothing to do with this whole history of uh, the exodus from Egypt and being in the wilderness and all of that. Um, Verse 7, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. So an important thing to notice here is in verse 7, it doesn't say the people of Israel broke God's law. They certainly did, but that's not the important part that's being stressed here. It says they sinned against the Lord their God. So before even breaking the law is when their sin happened. They set their hearts on other gods, and then they disobeyed the law. So the first thing that they did was they decided, God is not good enough, I'm going to go to something else. Breaking the law came after that. But the first thing was way more important. That's why a lot of, uh, a lot of pastors have pointed out, rightly so, that you cannot break any of the Ten Commandments without first breaking the First Commandment. And it's totally true. The First Commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Every other commandment is something that you would do only after you've decided that God was not your God anymore. Um, so that's what's important here. Not that they weren't abiding by the letter of the law, but that they didn't love God. Um, so where are we now? Verse 9. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. That's a big, that's a big expanse. Uh, they set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments uh, and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but there were, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. This is pretty much just a recap of um, the last, I don't know how many years, probably a couple hundred years of of Israel. Um, And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore... The Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So, if you're still thinking this might be a little bit unfair, um, I would ask, does Israel deserve to be keep, to be left in a land that was promised by a God that they don't believe in anymore? And the answer to that is, I don't, I don't think so. And at the same time, God doesn't deserve a people in a land that he has called the promised land 
if they're worshiping other gods. So that's not only a slap in the face to him, but they're, they've really outstayed their welcome if they're going to say, this land is ours. Oh, who gave you this land? Oh, it was... Who, who knows? Who remembers? Um, which is basically what they have done for the past, I don't know how many years. And they've seen nations fall that have done these idol worship things, and they're kind of like, well, maybe they just weren't doing it the correct way. So they pick up their idols and try and make it better. Um, but there is no good idol worship uh, as this is evidence of. Um, verse 21, when he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in, the, in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And there's another important uh, wording up here in verse 21, when he had torn Israel from the house of David. So he made David a promise. He never intended to break that promise. He never intended to be anything less than perfect when he told David that his line was going to continue. So instead of saying that... uh, they could have worded this some way differently, or um, God could have broken the promise and just said, you know what, y'all did terrible, and so I'm going to start over with another people. Um, but no, he took Israel away in order to keep his promise to David, ultimately keeping his promise to his ancestors that he would keep a people separate for himself. That is still intact. And in fact, I think that's a reason why all this stuff has been happening, had been happening in Israel for so many years, wars, uh, political tumult, is that how you say it? Political tumult, turmoil, that's a better word, better to pronounce. Um, and Judah really didn't have that happen for the most part until just recently. Um, and that is because of the protection of the Lord, because of his promise for David. Um, and if you want to learn more about that promise, you can check out our manna from First and Second Samuel. Um, so verse 24 and the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthah, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land, which is a huge misunderstanding of Yahweh, but uh, that's okay. Actually, it's not okay. Why did I say that? It's bad. Very bad. Um, But that's their understanding of how gods work. This region has this god. This region has this god. Oh, we've got to appease the region of this god. As soon as we step out, we don't need to worry about him anymore. Um, But that's not how God works, as you know. Verse 27, Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there, and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. This is a very strange section, because it's just such a, a weird mishmash of worldly logic, and sort of being taught about uh, the Hebrew Bible. Um, 
and the effects are not very good. Verse 29, But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Sumerians had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sakoth Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adremelech and Anemelech, the gods of Sepharvim. They also feared the Lord and appointed for themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods, after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, You shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him, and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods, and you shall not forget the covenant that I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So to recap, these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. This thing starting to slide. Um, so, run a little out of time, so I'll try to make this quick. Um, but still not good, right? Like, even though we have, like, what would we say, like 40% Yahweh, 60%, whoever these other gods are, that's not... That's not the point. It's not like, well, then they're 40% okay. It's still 100% not okay. Um, when Jesus says no one gets to the Father except through fill in the blank. Who? Yeah. That's right. That's a very exclusive statement. And that's not something that just came about all of a sudden in the New Testament. It's always been a very exclusive practice. So the inclusion of other gods is never going to work. Um, so that means no access to God Almighty whatsoever except through being purchased by Christ. Um, there's another verse, the gate is wide and the way is easy to destruction, and that's kind of what's happening here. They're like, oh, we hear about this guy, yeah, 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 but there's this other guy too, let's just, let's just bring them together, best of both worlds, right? Um, but it's still, not, it's still not how it works. On one hand, uh, we don't get to pick and choose. Has anyone ever had an a la carte meal before? You know what that phrase means? That's where you get to pick the things you want, you leave out the things you don't want. Um, or like a buffet, a buffet faith, a buffet, if you will. Um, that's, not, that's not how it's supposed to work. And that's why things like the Apostles' Creed, historically, have come into play. Not because people are like, oh, let's, let's make up a new thing for us to chant. But they wanted to be explicit about what they believe. The Apostles' Creed is saying... These are explicit things. This is what we believe. Anything outside of this just doesn't work. And so as a Christian, it is the gospel, it is the Bible, and that's it. That is what we believe is the avenue that God has told us about himself for us to understand him. Um, there's this uh, saying. It's, it's a very, very poorly constructed saying. It's talking about there's an elephant 
Some of you might have heard this. There's a cool, I'm sure you have. There's an elephant. There's four blind men. You know this one? Yeah. yeah. One of the blind men's touching the trunk, and he says, oh, this is, this is what an elephant is. And one of them's touching the tusk, and he says, oh, this is what an elephant is. One of them's touching you know, the, the leg. Oh, this is what an elephant is. One of them's touching the tail. This is what an elephant is. And people try to say, that's what understanding God is like. So one of the blind men, he's a Christian. He thinks God is this way. One of them, he's a Muslim. He thinks God is this way. You know, another guy, he's a, he's a Hindu. He thinks God is this way. And they're trying to say, oh, we all are just touching different parts of the same existence. And uh, the problem with that is you are assuming that you can see the whole elephant, and you also are not one of the blind people just touching part of it. So that's where it kind of all breaks down. You have to be able to see the whole thing in order to say, oh, you guys are all just reaching at certain parts of the same thing. So we believe we do see the whole thing. When people talk about being good to their neighbor, we're like, all right, you've got part of it, but you don't understand sacrifice, you don't understand sin, things like that. Um, so on one hand, we don't pick and choose. We feel like we have the whole picture of God as he is. On the other hand, we are supposed to leave out other things that might try and influence on what it is we do believe, um, and especially things that aren't necessarily bad but could, like I said before, turn into altars, turn into something we worship. could be your looks, could be your grades, could be your athleticism, could be a high score in Call of Duty which aren't all necessarily bad things, as long as you're getting your homework done. Um, I guess if your grades are high, then you are getting your homework done. But if they sit on the throne of being God, then it's absolutely toxic. Um, and so, like I said, the world, or like the Bible said, the world is passing away. All of those things, while not necessarily bad, they are not going to last. If you're relying on your looks, you're going to get old, you're going to get wrinkly. I'm sorry. If you're relying on your grades... You're going to graduate, and then what are you going to look for to find your status? Your athleticism, you're going to tear your ACL, or you're going to just get too old to play, something like that. High score in a video game, a new game is going to come out, and you're going to have to start all over. Um, so all of these things have an expiration date if they are not rooted in God. So it's okay to enjoy them, but we don't, we don't think of them as, as everything. Um, so okay, no expiration with God. That's good. He loves us. He is existing forever. He's chosen, for those of us that are Christians, each one of us to glorify him. He's going to remake heaven and earth, and we're going to live forever glorifying his name. That is why, for eternity, that is why we choose him over the things that we might prefer instead. Idols be damned, literally. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just how rich your word is, for how uh, often surprised I am at what the Old Testament has to say about who you are. That is just such a loud uh, foreshadow of what you continue to say later on and into uh, Jesus coming to earth. And I thank you so much that this is a story that we can rely on, that this is a, uh, a consistent story, something that... Um, has been proven again and again that when we trust in you and we trust in things you have given us and not the things of the world, that good comes out of it and that it will last and it will endure and your love endures. Um, so I thank you for that, that strong thing that we can hold on to when so much of what we try to grasp for in life just slips away from us. Um, I thank you for the truth in your word and what you've shown us through this book so far. Um, 
I just pray that we can really think about it for the rest of the week, that we can really let it settle in to how we view the things in our lives, how we view the good things that we might make a little more than good, um, and constantly, constantly keep you, keep the blood of Christ as our first and foremost. Everything else is secondary, and we can easily lose if need be. Um, So thank you. I pray for the rest of us for the rest of this week, whatever we've got going on, uh, until we meet again. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.